So we've got Psalm chapter 1, which on, I'm just going to hold it up, on this Bible with the small one is on 383, and on the other Bible is in 543, page 543. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And then we've got the second reading from Matthew 7, verses 24 to 29, which in the small Bible is 686, and in the other Bible is 972. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught not as one he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. Uh, let us pray. Father, we thank you for the Sermon on the Mount, and we pray that uh, as we <clears throat> consider the words of Jesus now, that uh, you would help us to be those who have our lives built on the solid foundation of Christ. So open our minds, soften our hearts, that we would be not only those who hear your word, but that we would put it into practice. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. House prices crash. I think that would be an exaggeration, a slight exaggeration, but uh, over the last few weeks, indeed most of this year, in the media has been reporting what they consider to be a bad news story uh, in the real estate sections. Uh, the bad news is that house, and house and apartment prices are dropping. Um, one report said that the value of housing in the Sydney market is tipped to fall by 10% this year. That's, that's tragic, isn't it? That's catastrophic. It's dreadful news. It's <coughs> I reckon it's great news, <laughs> don't you? I mean, if you're a young couple trying to buy into the Sydney market, that's... That's terrific news. I don't get the media. They, they, they only want to report things from a bad sort of angle. Anyway, it is bad news if you're an investor. And I understand that that has a flow-on effect to uh, the rental market and so on. 
Um, but what if it wasn't just the value of your house that crashed and collapsed? What if your actual house collapsed? That's what I would call a bad news story, wouldn't you? Um, here's a picture of what that looks like. Can you see that up the back? It's a great picture, isn't it? Uh, here's a nice house, very, very nice house, nice looking house. It's uh, built on the, uh, the bank of a, a river and what looks like what's happened is that there's been, been a lot of rain and the streams have filled up and have flowed into that river and there's been, uh, that's caused uh, perhaps a bit of flash flooding, the water has risen and it's cut into the sandy bank of the river uh, upon which the house was built. The house was built on a very sandy foundation. And there you have it. It's not just the price of the house that's collapsed, is it? It really pays to think with your head and not just with your heart when deciding where to build a house. It might be your dream home. Beautiful building, spacious, lots of rooms overlooking the serenity of the river, the good life. You just spend your days, you just step out of your house and drop a line in the river, spend your time enjoying fishing until one day half your house floats down the river, which the video of that actually shows. I'd love to show you the video of the half that house just sailing away down the river the foundation upon which your house is built is of great importance. So what about the foundation upon which your life is built? You know, today we come to the pointy end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the business end of the deal as far as Jesus is concerned. And it is, if you open up your Bibles at Matthew 7, this really is a familiar passage, isn't it? Uh, we're so familiar with it... Um, <clears throat> Number one reason because of that song that uh, we just sung, the wise man built his house upon the rock. If you've ever been to Sunday school, been on the beach mission or been here this Sunday, you've heard that song. Uh, we're familiar with this passage. But as we conclude our series on the Sermon on the Mount and before we dive into uh, these precise verses, I think it's good for us to remind ourselves of who Jesus was preaching to. Um, who was his audience uh, on that day? Because that kind of has a bit of an effect on how we understand uh, what the passage means, and if we understand who he was actually talking to and directing his message to. Uh, Jesus was in Galilee, and people had come from all over that part of the world to, uh, to come and hear him and to be healed. Uh, let's go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, just before the sermon, in chapter 4, looking at verse 23, just to set the context here, um, it tells us in chapter 4, verse 23, that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Uh, news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those 
suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and paralysed, and, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So you get the picture there. It's a, uh, from Syria, we hear a lot about Syria uh, these days in the, in the west, right through to the other side of the Jordan in the east. People have come to hear Jesus. But then in chapter 5, verse 1, we read, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. And he began to teach them. So, who were the hearers of Jesus' sermon? Well, in chapter 5, verse 1, at the very start of the sermon, it appears that primarily it was the 12 disciples, wasn't it? The disciples came to him and he began to teach them. But then if you go to the back of the sermon, go over to chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, passage we're looking at today, what we see here is that it's not just the 12 disciples that are listening, but that the, the crowd, all of those people come from all those places, that they were listening in uh, on Jesus as well, that they were eavesdropping the sermon. So it's indirectly uh, he's preaching to the crowds. And the crowds thought it was great. Terrific sermon. They really appreciated it. But here's the point. When Jesus warns his hearers uh, in today's passage not to build their house on sand, he's, he's not talking to people who don't give two hoots about God. He's not talking to people who are totally disinterested in uh, spiritual matters, um, in God, in Jesus. Uh, these are people who wanted to be with him. The crowds have come from vast distances to be near Jesus. Um, his disciples, those who spent uh, the most intimate time with him, these are the people that he's talking to people who have already got a keen interest uh, in the things of God. And then we see in verse 24... He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat across against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So what is he saying about the people um, who are listening to his words? Well, we've seen that there is this great diversity of people from those different regions, uh, but they have one thing in common. They have all heard the words of Jesus. They've heard the sermon. They have that in common. But in the crowd, there'll be two different types of people. Uh, just as in Jesus' story, there are two different, um, two different men. 
One is wise, the other is foolish. Both of them intend to build a house. And they have a choice between uh, the various blocks of land. There's, there's land that, that has rock. There's, there's other land that has sand. And so the wise man chooses the land into which he can drive the foundations of his house into solid rock so that the foundation will never move, which means that the house is therefore firmly secured and it's not going anywhere. The rain can come down, the river can rise, but that house is not going to go floating away. But in verses 26 and 27, there is a foolish man. Now, he could build his house on the rock, but he doesn't. He decides he's to build his house on sand. I wonder why he would do that. I mean, Jesus doesn't tell us, does he, why he would do that. Imagine, you know, nice view of the river, perhaps. Uh, maybe the uh, block of land was cheap. Um, but what does this sand represent? Now, it would be true to say that uh, it is foolish to base your life on anything which is which is transient, anything which is slippery. And people don't do that, don't they? People base their lives on, on a whole range of different things, many of which we've actually seen in the Sermon on the Mount. And people build their lives on the idea that, um, that their meaning and their satisfaction in life will come from material possessions or money or pleasure or um, having the perfect partner, or series of perfect partners, or knowledge, or prestige. It's interesting to read the words of the teacher in Ecclesiastes, because he was a man who had all of that, great wealth, and yet he said, ah, trying to find satisfaction there, it was like, trying to chase after the wind. He couldn't quite grasp it. Never quite achieved what he wanted. These things are very slippery foundations for life. They are easily lost. They are unsatisfying. And when it comes down to it, they, they, they are declared to be meaningless by the grave. Death declares these things to be how much money you've got uh, 10,000 years into eternity in your bank account now is going to mean nothing. So death makes a mockery of so much for which we live. However, Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount is not actually addressing people who are ignorant of some of these things. They're not ignorant of God. They're not ignorant of ultimate reality. They're not ignorant of of the spiritual world. Many have come from miraculous healings. Here he is addressing people who have come to him, gathered around him, and importantly, they have heard his words. Most of these people would have been Jews. For whom... The bigger problem 
the Jewish people had in the first century was not ignorance of God, but was false confidence. Throughout the Old Testament, the recurring problem was that God's people kept on trusting in themselves, trusting in their own um, righteousness, uh, even trusting in, uh, in their religion. Uh, trusting that they had the temple of God, that they had the priests of God, that they had the law of God, that they had the land of God. They believed in God, but yet they lived as if it was all about them. Which is what Jesus has been exposing and indeed has been rebuking throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Why did people think that, it was, that they were okay with God? Well, let's go back on the sermon, shall we? Because in uh, chapter 5, uh, they <clears throat> thought that being right with God was all about uh, obeying the letter of the law. Um, they didn't technically murder. They didn't technically commit adultery. They technically kept lots of laws. Therefore, they're okay with God. But Jesus says, what about your heart? How's your heart going? Have you ever hated someone? Have you ever lusted? Have you loved God and have you even loved your enemies? Then in chapter 6, when they did religious things, it wasn't always because they loved God. It was, was all about them. They prayed, they gave money, they fasted because they wanted the, the kudos, they wanted the respect uh, in their community that accrued to them by those sorts of things. In chapter 6, there's a temptation to trust in money <clears throat> rather than trusting in the one who provides all good things. In chapter 7, the temptation to judge others because they think they are more righteous. To which Jesus, you recall, says, look, never mind. Never mind that speck of sawdust in your brother's eye. Why don't you actually amputate or, you know, get rid of that log that's stuck through your own skull and then you'll be in a better position. And so the point here is that you can be very religious. You can attend church, give money, you can pray, you can keep all sorts of laws and traditions, you can look the part. Some people even make a career out of religion and uh, climb the ecclesiastical ladder. But religion like that is a slippery foundation for life. It's like building a house on sand next to the river. It will not, uh, it will not stand. And so in Jesus' story, why would the man build his house on a block like that? Well, maybe the real estate agent assured him that those storms with those floods, they never happened. It, it's not going to occur. You're safe. That's the one once in a hundred year flood. And one happened last year, so you've got 99 years, you know. No worries. It's a great deal. In verses 25 and 27, what does this storm represent? Um, some would say, and I think that there's, and there's, certainly there's validity to this. This is absolutely true. Uh, that the trials of life can be like a storm for us, can't they? Um, sickness, 
rejection, poverty, persecution. And certainly the, the buffeting of those kind of storms does reveal the, the kind of foundations that we have. The um, person who professes Christ and um, uh, goes through trials and difficulties in life, uh, which uh, they respond to by becoming sour and bitter and, uh, and walking away from God, uh, well, that actually shows where their foundations uh, were built, what the foundation was like. The uh, superficiality of self-trust as opposed to the security of trust in Christ. So I think that that, that is true. Uh, I'm not, I don't necessarily think that that's the primary um, issue here in the passage, though. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, it appears that the storm which Jesus has in mind is the day of judgment. That's a storm. Uh, because that's what he's been warning us against uh, throughout the, uh, Matthew 5 through to 7. Uh, for example, in chapter 5, uh, Jesus kept on saying that if a part of your body causes you to sin, get rid of it because it's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into the fires of hell. Um, have a look at chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 13, um, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. So destruction is what he's talking about there. Uh, chapter 7, verse 19 Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Uh, chapter 7, verse 22. Uh, many will say to me on that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. So these are striking words, aren't they? These are striking words about judgment. Now, of course, there are many people in our society who so it's a load of rubbish. There is no day of judgment. There is no eternity. It's just, just live for the, for the day, uh, live for now. Um, and when you die, that's it. It's all over. Um, but there are some uh, within the church, false prophets within the church, who also say that there is no such thing as God's judgment. They say that for God to be a God of judgment means that he cannot be a God of love. That judgment and love are, are not compatible. And that's because they don't understand love. They don't understand the, the character of God. That God is a holy and a righteous God. That God is a God who cannot, uh, who cannot have sin within his presence. Uh, but that he is a God who loves us, that he's made us, that he's loved us. We are of incredible value to him. We are the pinnacle of his creation and therefore he cares about how we live. He cares about right and wrong uh, not in, in our lives. And so 
the fact that God actually judges us tells us that we're more value than, of, of greater value than all the other creatures. That the way that we live actually matters. And of course, that on the cross of Jesus, we see God's love and God, God's judgment intersecting. Where because of his great love for us, he poured out his judgment which we deserved, onto his own son so that the righteous requirements of God are fully met, that we can be forgiven, that we can pass through that day of judgment unscathed because our judgment has already been paid for and we can be forgiven and live with God forever uh, through all of eternity in heaven. And so they don't understand God's character and God's love. And more than that, they don't really want to repent anyway. So it's much easier to do away with the concept of judgment. Um, some choose conveniently to redefine hell. There's uh, one uh, very well-known televangelist who says that hell is all about having lowest, low self-esteem. How about that? And millions believe him and empty their wallets and their bank accounts to pay for his private jets. And they get that not from the word of God but from their own minds. The, the Bible clearly speaks about judgment, the coming day of judgment. I wonder if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 3 in my Bible which is the one that most of you have it's uh, on page 861 <clears throat> let me read to, the, to you uh, 2 Peter 3 verses 3 to 7 first of all you must understand that in the last days it's the days we're living in now between the resurrection of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So notice here that Peter is saying that God hasn't changed, that uh, God in the past, through his word, created all things and through his word brought about the judgment, which the time of Noah at the flood... So there is historical precedent that God keeps his word on this topic of judgment. But they forget about that, don't they? You notice that Peter says that they deliberately forget about it. <laughs> it's, it's not poor memory. It's an intention of the will to actually deliberately forget that God is a God who judges. 
In the same way that he destroyed the world at that time, in the time of the flood, so too he has promised that there will be a coming day of judgment when the Lord Jesus will appear and uh, that uh, there will be a <clears throat> judgment on this, on this world where the present heavens and the earth will be, um, <clears throat> there will be a new heaven and a new earth and uh, there will be all men will be called to, to account uh, as to whether for our sin, the basis upon which uh, we will pass through that judgment will be whether or not Jesus' death has been appropriated to us through faith. So the Bible is quite clear on the topic of judgment. God has already shown that when it comes to judgment that he does keep his word and the fact that um, the day of judgment has not yet come uh, is not because it's a myth, it's because God is being patient with us and he's given us opportunity to repent. Now, what is striking then <clears throat> in the Sermon on the Mount is that is the people to whom Jesus is speaking because he's not speaking to pagans. He's preaching primarily to his disciples and then uh, the, the, the overflow crowd is all of those who have come in order to receive his ministry. And Matthew tells us that they were stunned by what they heard. We see this in verse 28. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. Now, what does, he, what does that mean? Well, the, the crowds had never heard such words of wisdom and depth and, and insight um, or uh, perhaps with the exception of anyone who'd heard John the Baptist, they'd never heard such a straightforward denunciation of false religion and of self-righteousness. They had never heard such a demanding description of true righteousness. But what is it that truly amazed them? What, what does Matthew say? What, what is it that amazed them about Jesus? They were amazed because Jesus spoke with authority. Uh, you see... When their rabbis taught them, the rabbis would appeal to precedent. Uh, a rabbi would say, well, look, um, you know, Rabbi Hillel, he said this, or Rabbi Gamaliel, he said this. This is how Rabbi so-and-so interpreted and applied the law. And so what are they doing? They're deferring to a higher authority all the time, aren't they? Um, but not so with Jesus. Jesus spoke as the authority. Uh, let's do a quick flick through the sermon here. Go to chapter 5, verse 21. Anyone got that? Chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Notice that? You've heard it said, but I tell you. Or go down to uh, verse 27. Uh, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you. 
uh, or verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, or verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, and actually it keeps on going on um, throughout that part of the sermon. You get the idea, don't you? So they should be amazed by his teaching because it is amazing. It's amazing, not, to, not just in terms of the clarity, the depth, the challenge, the height. It's amazing because of who Jesus is, the authority. Are you amazed by this man, Jesus? Well, I've got to tell you this, friends. <clears throat> Amazement is one thing, but... What God actually wanted, wants is obedience. Uh, Jesus didn't preach the Sermon on the Mount for their amazement. He preached the Sermon on the Mount for their belief, their obedience, and ultimately so as to save them from judgment. That's his purpose. For to trust in showy religion or self-righteousness or material possessions, that's just like building your house on a foundation of sand. So that in verse 27, on that, on that day, on the day of judgment, when the Lord Jesus returns, you will fall with a great crash. But the person who hears the words of Jesus and puts them into practice, well, that's the person who's built their life on a good foundation. That's the humble person who we read about in the Beatitudes. And from where we stand, this side of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we know with greater fullness what that means, that that is the person who has humbly confessed their sin before God their undeservedness, and it's found forgiveness through the cross of Christ. Found forgiveness through that very fact that the character of God in terms of his holiness, his just judgment and his love and mercy has intersected when Jesus bore the penalty which we deserved on the cross. That is a very solid rock. And the, the, the solidity of that rock has been proven by the resurrection of Jesus. You can build your life on it. And so I wonder how many people in the crowd that day did build their lives on that rock. Remember Jesus said there's two types of people in the crowd really, representing those two different men. Um, remember his, his audience? There was the 12 disciples, so his primary audience. And then there was the crowd. They all heard the words of Jesus and were amazed. But did they put it into practice? Did they build their house on the rock? Judas didn't. Judas didn't. I mean, he was about as close to Jesus as anyone could get. 
And yet, what did he build his house on? Sand. Paid 30 pieces of, he was paid 30 pieces of silver. And the crowds, well, throughout Jesus' ministry, there were many, many thousands of people who congregated around Jesus, who listened and who were impressed. But the question is always, did they obey? Um, in uh, John chapter 6, where Jesus had uh, given some, some hard teaching, uh, in John chapter 6, we're told that the crowds began to shrink as people actually turned away, turned their back on Jesus. They walked away, they left him. And of course, the uh, epitome of crowd rejection was on that day when they cried out, crucify him. What about us? What's your foundation? Because we have all heard the words of Jesus, haven't we? We've all heard the words of Jesus. Uh, some of us, we all have different experiences in life. Um, some of us have grown up in Christian homes. Um, some of us haven't, and we've uh, come to realise the, uh, uh, that there is a better foundation in Jesus. Uh, we read our Bibles, we pray, we listen to sermons, and obviously we come to church, you're all in church here today. And yet, being in church and being religious, that's not the same as personally trusting in Christ, in his death and his resurrection. Outwardly, it may look similar, even the same. I've noticed this in our own church. Over the years, there have been congregation members, people who come along to church regularly, involved in Bible study groups and all sorts of things, who I've thought that they were Christians, but they weren't. Now, how do I know that? Well, firstly and sadly, uh, with some it's uh, come, when it's come down to a very clear and a very deliberate choice to either follow Christ or follow the world... They've chosen to follow the world and they've <clears throat> left the church and no longer profess Christ. Now secondly, and thankfully, there are times when uh, long-term congregation members have actually said that they were just churchgoers. How about that, eh? that they had never understood Christ's death for them, uh, but that now they do understand and that they've chosen to repent and to trust in Christ. And they, they now live uh, with no fear of death and judgment because they know the solid rock upon which their lives are now built. Sometimes it's a process, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> because <clears throat> some people uh, come to that kind of realisation pretty quickly. Other times it takes a while to, to process uh, a biblical worldview. I think, for example, of, I don't think she'll mind me mentioning this, but Maddie, 
some of you know Maddie. She, a number of years ago, uh, she was a non-Christian and uh, she got to know a few Christian friends at school and uh, she, was, she liked them, got invited along to church and then went along to youth group and got to know more Christians and I could, you, we could see her, her life's, her thinking and her basis of life sort of gradually changing. Um, she left us to go to Sydney, continued with um, meeting up with Christians, going to church and so on. But it was only really, I think, last year when she uh, came to that uh, very clear realisation that her house, her life had been built on uh, very shaky foundations and that she needed to make a decisive change and uh, that she uh, put her faith in Christ and uh, has now... Um, completely changed. So in the sense that uh, she was going along to church for two or three years, but it's at that point of realisation of the truthfulness of the gospel that has caused her to uh, now sink her foundations into a very solid rock, and that is Christ uh, risen from the grave. And uh, <clears throat> you'll be interested to know that in a few weeks she'll be baptised. At, uh, if you're down in Sydney, Ashfield Presbyterian, I think it's around Mother's Day-ish, kind of that sort of time, time frame. So the question for us is, what about your life? Have you built your house on the rock? Uh, if not, then maybe it's time for you to do some serious business with God. So that uh, you'll be able to sing the hymn that we're about to sing and sing it with uh, actual personal meaning and significance for yourself. You know the hymn, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. No merit of my own I claim, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand because all other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father, uh, we want to thank you for the uh, great challenge of Jesus, that he, uh, that he made it so clear that we have to change the basis of our lives. And so we pray for each one of us here that we would not be uh, seeking to build a life on a shaky foundation, but only on Christ uh, died and raised from the grave as the very basis for life that will mean that we can pass through that day of judgment into all of eternity spent with you, a forgiven and redeemed people. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.